Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and of things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Well guys, another weekend has passed. We've moved into a brand new week, and this time we've moved into, well, a brand new month. Technically, uh, Friday was the first day of the month, but I didn't mention it then. I'm sure going to mention it now, though, because tick-tock, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Can you believe that 2017 is almost gone? I mean, I want you to really think about that, really take that in, how much has happened this year, but how quickly it seemed to go. I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I feel like... 2017 probably went away from me quicker than any other year ever has. Um, it, it, it just seems like yesterday that I was watching snowflakes cry because Donald Trump became president in 2016 toward the end of that year. And a little more than a year ago. It doesn't seem like a year ago. And of course, you know me, I wasn't celebrating the election of President Trump or anything, but it was great to watch the snowflakes cry as though something in their life really had changed and to listen to the talk radio idiots act like something in their life really had changed and have you looked around lately things aren't much different than they really were before are they i know i know they passed the tax bill yeah let me know how excited you are about that uh when you file your next tax return and see how great it really is for you and they they're not done yet, so we'll see what actually happens. I, I did notice, like, here's just a topical thing. Usually we, we, we stick to, you know, things that are timeless in our discussions here. Uh, but Elizabeth Warren was upset that they didn't have time to read the complete bill before they voted on it, as if she would have voted on it if she read it, first of all. But I just I, I find Democrats bitching that they didn't have time to read a 500-page bill, most of which has been written for weeks just to be a little bit hypocritical given what they did with the Unaffordable Care Act. No, I did not misspeak the Unaffordable Care Act. But enough of politics. Let's talk about things that are actually important to our lives. I have a question today on what the opportunities in cryptocurrency might be besides investing directly, buying and holding, mining, that type of stuff. I have some thoughts on that. It'll be a brief segment. Uh, there's another hit piece out that came to me today. It might actually be an older piece because it says they went undercover, deep undercover in 2016 into Uber and Lyft. Uh, I, I keep seeing these hit pieces come out about how the, the poor victimized Uber and Lyft drivers are, and they're not making any money, and they're just too stupid to not know that they're losing money. It's, it, it's pretty sad. I'll talk about some of the things that you never hear considered in these types of stories. And I'll talk a little bit about what I think the actual motivation is. In this this whole like Uber and Lyft are evil world coming a lot from the left, which is odd, honestly, in the way that it is. Uh, thoughts on considering solar hot water systems? A question on finding the right lever gun for an all around big game rifle? Um, how we are conditioned to taxes like cattle to a fence? A little more follow up from our vehicle taxation. Just a, a thought that I had in passing about how people actually respond to a tax when they've grown up with it their whole life versus they've been told about it and they've never experienced such a thing. And I'll tell you about one of the most ridiculous taxes in the world that I grew up with, adults around me, not paying, and nobody ever did a damn thing about it. It's, it's pretty funny, actually. Um, 
Next on blockchain's hit list, so this is the cryptocurrency world, but it's really not about cryptocurrency, it's about blockchain technology, the education system. Yeah, taking aim right at them. There's an ICO involved in this. I'm going to be very clear that I'm not endorsing this ICO or suggesting you go put money in it or even saying that I think the project itself will be successful. But I, I, I do believe that the concept of block lane, blockchain-like technology being ideal for distance-based education and even for integrated with you know a hybrid-type education environment might be really cool and might be a big part of our future. Uh, I have a bunch of questions from a bunch of people I've held off to now on the sexual misconduct charges going apeshit everywhere in Congress, Matt Lauer. Blah, why, why the flood, I guess, is the big, the big question I'm getting. Probably a good dozen people or more have asked me that specific phrase, why the flood now. Uh, I'll give you a few thoughts on that. It's going to be a very brief segment because I honestly don't think this is going to affect the temperature of the water in your pool at all. Uh, I think that this will be an outrage of the, uh, maybe not of the week, but of like the quarter, and we'll be back to business as usual very, very soon thereafter. And I'll tell you why. If that doesn't happen, it might actually be a bad thing, because I think we're heading for witch hunt territory here. Uh, a question on the best tree to plant for firewood in your on your own property for sustainable firewood harvesting. Uh, I bet you a bunch of you go, I already know what he's going to say, especially since this is in Texas. Um, more on downsizing the university system. So yeah, blockchain's taking a shot at the university system, but the university system is doing a good job of hurting itself. I'll tell you about a downsizing of a university. Not the same one we've talked about before, another one. Uh, and then I have a question like, what's going on right now at the Spearco Homestead versus some of the stuff I've thought about future plans? Like, what, what is Jack Spearco doing the first week of December on his homestead in Texas? Today, believe it or not, I'm sweating. Tomorrow I think I'll be wearing a jacket, but we'll get more in-depth than that on a few ongoing projects. All of that and more in just a bit before we get into today's topics, let's uh, remind you guys about the TSP Sponsors of the Day. Sponsor of the Day number one today is the TSP Business Directory. Look, guys, did you know that we have a directory where you can find businesses within our community to do business with? You go there, you search for a term or a topic or look at the individual categories, and you can see TSP community members just like you and the businesses they have and the products and services they have for offer. Or you can list your business there for as little as five bucks per six months. The cheapest advertising you'll ever do. It is the place to find uh, community members and to be found by community members. And it's located where? TSPBiz.com. TSPBiz.com. Next up today, HarvestEating.com, the awesome chef Keith Snow. I don't think a week goes by that I don't reach for one of the, uh, one of his uh, seasoning packets in my home. Uh, yesterday, uh, no, yesterday I made chili, and I, I do my own thing with chili. It was the day before I did uh, I did braised beef short ribs. We bought this half a cow this year, and I'm, I'm you know we really cherry picked and ate all the steak first, and we're down to roasts and short ribs. I did a, a, a braised short ribs, and I used uh, Keith's Northern, or actually I did his Tuscan blend, um, which is a new seasoning he has out on the short ribs. Man, they came out fantastic. Man, if you've never slow-cooked some beef short ribs, you need to give that a try. Just might get some good beefy ones with some actual meat on them instead of being all fat or all bone. Man, they were freaking good. Chef Keith Snow, great stuff, great courses to teach you how to be a good chef, amazing podcast, awesome YouTube channel, great website, great products, harvesteating.com to learn more about all the great stuff that expert council member Keith Snow has for you. Again, harvesteating.com. Before we take that deep dive into all these great topics today, let's uh, take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 77 A.D., and I have from David Verne, a new governor for Britain. 
The Roman governor of Britain, Fortinius, Fontinius, I've got it right now, Fontinius, but he's got some weird names, man, had been recalled to Rome and is rewarded for his service by being appointed water commissioner of Rome, a post only given to trusted men. His replacement, Julius Agricola, uh, has twice served on the staff of British governors. During the transition between governors, the Adrivuses, a Welsh tribe, wipe out a Roman cavalry detachment. Agricola acts swiftly after taking command and nearly wipes out the tribe. He establishes a reputation as a capable commander and administrator, and he reforms the corrupt grain tax. He also begins preparing for a campaign to extend Roman control north into Scotland. My take by David Verne. Modern historians more know about what Agricola was doing during this time than what Emperor Vespian was doing. Agricola was smart enough to marry his daughter to a young politician and future historian, Tactius. Tactius wrote his forced history on the life of his father-in-law dealing with Agricola's campaigns in Britain. In the 15th century, a copy of the book was discovered in a German monastery. This copy uh, and various copy pages discovered in libraries throughout Europe have resulted in near-complete reconstruction of the original. I think it's cool that we have stuff like this. Like, I don't even really care like if the guy is a good guy, a bad guy, a decent guy, an awful guy. To have like very specifics about what really did happen, you know, almost 2,000 years ago, I think is is a gift in the modern day. And it brings me back to I think we've become complacent with history, and what I mean by that is like the the present being accurately reported in the future. That like to 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 actually preserve history and uh, what is the modern day present because we figure with the internet everybody will always know everything and I I just think like if you went out in the streets today and you found yourself you know a young person somebody let's say 15 years old and you handed them an old floppy disk not the one that they don't even know what it is when they hit save in Microsoft Word or something like that, the, the little hard ones, the original ones, the big ones that were actually, like, people don't even know why the hard ones were floppy, because floppy on the inside, but an old school one. Like, if you're my age, like when you were a kid, and you were playing games, and you had your Commodore 64, and you had to stick it in there, and that one, and then you, like, finish loading, and you put a second one in so you could play the game, and it like, load two discs, like one of those that said, what is this? I think more of them would know what a cassette tape is than would know what an original floppy disk was. So my question is, will technology maybe make a leap at some point where a lot of the things that we look at and think are preserved for eternity are lost? And what will be the belief system about history in the future, given that today everybody has their own twisted opinion and twisted agenda on how it's recorded, who will be the winners and losers who write history. They've always said that history is written by the victors. And I think that's largely been true up till now. But today, history is written by everyone. Next up, before we get into your questions, let me remind you how you can get a question onto a show like today's show, or make a statement, or give me a news story, or anything like that. All you got to do is email me, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com or jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, depending on who taught you how to read when you were in kindergarten. And uh, either way, it will get to me. And uh, put TSPC in the subject line, and then something like question for Jack, comment for Jack, whatever, and I'll try to get you on the air. Uh, always try to give me your bottom line up front, 
and then your details. And hit the return key once in a while. I really have a pet peeve with jumbles of text. If you send me like five paragraphs crammed into one giant paragraph block, I may not read it. My mind doesn't work that way. It all meshes together. You know, online, on, on, on guys, let me give you guys a little tip for effective blog comments and stuff like that. Every two or three sentences, hit return and hit it again and put a space. Even if it's not like by the English rules, a paragraph, write in blocks online. You're going to be a lot more likely to uh, be read by people. And when you send me an email, follow the same rules. Before I get to your questions, reminder one more time, guys, you can help support me by doing what? Join the Member Support Brigade. To learn more, just go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. That's all I'll say about that today. And let's get into the main topic. The first one comes from Josh. Josh says, hey, Jack, you've talked a lot about crypto lately, and I've learned a lot from you. Thanks for the tips. I've actually got quite a big upside thanks to investing in a little bit of Bitcoin and Ether. But it's got me thinking about the old school advice of sell picks and shovels to the miners uh, in regard to the gold rushes and the silver rushes in the early United States. There's a lot of towns out there, for instance, like Tombstone, that became ghost towns after the silver and gold rushes went away. A lot of the miners lost, and yet a lot of people became really wealthy by selling picks and shovels to the miners. Of course, that's a metaphor. There was a lot of other things they sold to the miners. And I'm not just specifically talking about mining today, but investing as well. It would seem to me that there should be huge opportunities in cryptocurrency beyond owning the currency or mining the currency yourself, even if you're going to do those things too. What say you? I, I think you're absolutely right. One of the things I remember Vin Armani saying very early on in his walk with his new podcast, it's about a year old now, is uh, go out and learn Solidity. Solidity is one of the main forms of code that a lot of these cryptocurrency things are written on. And that might be a thing to do, but not everybody's going to be a code writer or a programmer. But that would be an example of like a simple answer. I think to me, though, like, so I'm looking at this from a, a larger view, like where, where are the, the big opportunities, like where if you can get a group of investors together or really talented developers together, what hasn't been done yet that, that could be done? Um, I think whoever skins the first really easily usable payment system uh, where you know it can be as simple as PayPal, And, and Coinbase is kind of there, but they're not, and they're limited to only a few currencies, and they're playing nice with the government, which makes it great if you want to exchange fiat dollars for crypto. But somebody that creates that system that's exclusively crypto, it can that way keep the .gov out. Um, some crypto makers are working on this, like Dash is trying to do exactly that. On some levels, I'm a little frustrated with the crypto space in this world. Like, it doesn't seem that hard to do this. However, there are major security concerns because security is... This is the thing about cryptocurrency. It is either the most secure or least secure way to hold your money, depending on what you do. And what a lot of these people that are developing systems are trying to do is make sure that they don't make it easy for you to make it not not secure because you can really easily if you, you do some dumb things. And people are so accustomed to having the almighty .gov regulators make your shit safe or promise to replace it if it, it gets you know if it disappears uh, that, that people are lapsing that. So I think that's one spot. I think another spot, and I've, I've said this before on the air, I think there's a huge market out there for someone to basically do something that looks like a hybrid 
between something like Steam and something totally on crypto related, which is uh, Empire Cred, I think is what they call it, not KREB, but it was called Empire Avenue when it came out. Now, Empire Avenue is a social media stock market is a way to look at it. I have a profile there because, hey, it's exposure. And uh, basically, you can buy stock using something called EVES on Empire Avenue, and you can buy survival podcast stock. And if you hold the stock, you collect a dividend. Now, this is all a game. And there's all kinds of crap they've built into it now, missions and stuff like that. It seems overrun with network marketers and stuff. But, I mean, some big companies are on there. You know, Ford is on there, for example, uh, and what have you. And I do think it's good exposure for the business. And when they started out, they seemed to be going more toward uh, a metrics-type thing where I was able to learn a lot of really great information about how effective my social media was. And that all kind of went away. And they seem to go all in on the gaming thing, and I guess that's probably smarter for them, though I was willing to pay for some of that information. I'll, I'll just say that. But So that doesn't you don't make any money. You, you trade these things called EVEs, and you can't even really buy anything with them. They at least used to let you buy fake shit with them, like a pretend boat and stuff. They even got rid of that. So I, I don't know what their angle is really over there, Over the though I think they are making a lot of money because people are paying cash for these things, even though you can't sell or transfer them because, again, it's a game. Um, and there's no way, as far as I know, to even backdoor that. But then you've got Steam, where people are actually buying a token or a coin in, in the Steam token. And when you post something kind of like Reddit or like Dig back in the day or something like that, or Facebook with a little bit less emphasis, I, I, I don't know, on all the crap that glitz around Facebook... You say I post something, you think it's really, really great, and you feel like I gave you something of value. Maybe you give me, you know, fifty cents worth of steam, or maybe you give me a dollar's worth of steam. Or like, if, like if I told you something, and you went out and did it, and it really made you like a hundred bucks. Maybe, you, maybe you turn back around and you give me something like I don't know, five, ten bucks. And there's people that make a lot of money posting content to Steam. What I'm talking about is more of a hybrid in this, where. You would have basically a virtual stock market, though I would not call it that because the SEC will get really on top of this. And the whole thing is going to be how do you keep the SEC out of it? But what I what I would see is any kind of content creator, podcaster, blogger, etc., could basically set up a profile like and if you go to empire.kred, I think is it, or go to the survivalpodcast.com and look for a link near the top center column that says buy, buy free stock in TSPC. Click that, that'll definitely get you there. You can kind of see how that looks. You can see leaderboards and the stock price and all. And it would never be able to run away with stupid pricing the way that the game does. But let's say that I set up a profile on there and you were able to buy some sort of a token and I would stay completely away from money. So you'd have to buy it for Ether or buy it for, and leave the ICO crap out of it. Just make it a straight up business. And then, so these tokens would then, maybe you do an ICO to get them out there initially. And then they trade on the open market. So you would go to Bittrex or use Shapeshift or whatever, and, and, and you'd get some of these credits. And you could then send them to a wallet in your account. And then you could use them to buy shares in your favorite content producers. And somebody that can skin away without getting in trouble with the, the .gov and the Department of Making You Sad, of the better the person that you invest in does, you get something back. I mean, I think what you do then is you give the small company the ability to compete with, with Wall Street. 
And I'm not exactly sure how you do that, because it can't be a direct investment that directly benefits, for instance, me. There would have to be some roundabout way that this happens. But I think that if somebody can figure that out, so you need somebody that's familiar with, with uh, finance and investing law and a good development team, and they can work on that together, that is multi-billion dollar business. That is a multi-billion dollar business waiting to happen. The next is like, I think that if we can get multi-signature wallets developed, I think there already are some, for instance, that do this, but I think they can be done better, where the wallet itself becomes an exchange. Waves is kind of doing this right now, um, but in a little bit more complicated way than I think it needs to be, and they touch money. They touch U.S. dollars. They touch euros. And I think that changes the whole way that they would be regulated. But for instance, if you look at something like the Jax wallet, so the Jax wallet, you go get it for free, you download it, and you put cryptocurrency in it. And they might make a little bit on transactions, but it's not much. And you might wonder, well, then how does a company continue to develop such an awesome product and make money? And their primary source of revenue is as an affiliate for Shapeshift. So Shapeshift is basically a very simple exchange. So I want to change my basic attention tokens into, let's say, Litecoin, for whatever reason. On something like Bittrex, which is a big, runs like a stock, it looks like E-Trade, basically, in a lot of ways. Uh, so you, you get on Bittrex and you have your basic attention tokens. You want to turn them into Litecoin. Well, what you have to do is you have to sell them for Bitcoin and or Ethereum and then use that to buy Litecoin. You have to make two transactions. Where what Shapeshift does is they provide liquidity in the transaction, and you just say, Shapeshift, this to this, boom, and it happens. So when you walk around with a software wallet like Jax, you basically have an exchange in your pocket. Now, what I've noticed is a lot of currencies that I have no interest in, and I don't know who the hell does, have been added to the Jax wallet, just like off-the-wall currencies. And a lot of really like kind of heavy hitter currencies that seem to have a lot of opportunity like, let's say, Monero, are not in there for whatever reason. Um, so that limits how much you can do with that wallet. So I think getting into a multi-currency software wallet that has the ability to have you know, almost all of the currencies that are being heavily traded is in the best interest of the wallet maker because there's more transaction fees being made, if, whether it's Shapeshift or some other exchangely or somebody else that you work with. And that, again, that gives people, like, you don't need anything to set up a Jax wallet. You can get on a computer and download a Jax wallet to it and start trading within the Jax limitation all you want. And no one knows nothing. Now, getting the, the currency in the first place, that's a, a thing to skin elsewhere. But this would be the big thing, I think, that a wallet needs to become a de facto trading tool. There's a cryptocurrency called Tether, T-E-T-H-E-R. Now, this is not something to go buy a bunch of because you think you're going to make a bunch of money on it because you'll probably never make anything on it. You might make a couple points up or lose a couple points, but that's about it. It's called Tether because it is somehow, and I don't know exactly how, but it's been run for enough years now that I'm pretty confident in it, tethered to the United States dollar. So one Tether equals about $1. And I've seen it go as low as like $0.92 cents and as high as like $1.08. And those are very quick aberrations, and it returned to the norm very, very quickly. So Tether clearly is a tool for the trader who does not want to go into fiat but wants stability. In other words, I want to take some profit from my Bitcoin because I believe that Bitcoin is going to go down today, for instance. 500 bucks a coin. 
some point during the day. It's going to drop. And when it does that, I want to buy it back. But I don't want to move in the ether because it could move too. So if you're sitting on Bittrex and you watch the Bitcoin price and it drops 500 bucks and you think that's a temporary drop, you can sell Bitcoin in the tether. You can wait for it to go. Uh, I mean, you can you can you can sell your Bitcoin when it's 500 up. You can go on a tether. You can wait for the drop, and then you can go back in. You pay a very low uh, brokerage fee on on Bittrex, and you're 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 back into Bitcoin at a gain, and you made money just like that. And there's a lot of people doing this, and Tether's a great tool for it. You integrate that into a wallet. Now, see, I don't know if maybe Shapeshift doesn't support them, but that type of thinking. Like, if you can make it where your phone is an exchange and it's anonymous, I mean, you've got a fortune waiting to happen. The other thing I think that would be really advantageous, though I don't know how you do it, is if you could build a software wallet where I have an account, I guess, is the way to look at some way that I can basically be your affiliate, And I somehow make money off that long-term income, even if it's a very tiny piece. Because I just think, like, how much Bitcoin would I have if I'd been recommending Jax? And every time somebody shapeshifted in Jax that was my affiliate, my Jax wallet got, you know, a, a, a tiny piece of Bitcoin or a tiny piece of Litecoin or a tiny piece of Ether. And I think whoever did that, the benefit wouldn't just be to the people that that would do it for you and, and they're getting commissions. Obviously, I think it would make you the number one software wallet overnight. Because it'd be the one that everybody pushed, assuming you did everything else right. Those are just some things that I think could be done. I think there's, you know, opportunities in blockchain that's outside of cryptocurrency as cryptocurrency really being a thing. I, I wanted to talk about one thing here before I move on from cryptocurrency today, though. I think it's really important for people to understand. Because a lot of hype starting around. I don't want people to get their ass burned. I saw a thing recently on Facebook, and it said that the target, the, the target prediction for Ripple, which is, uh, uh, which is basically a financial services uh, crypto it's supposed to work for the big banks uh, it was a thousand dollars a thousand dollars and it's trading at like a buck or something right now and the thing is that there's like I don't know 23 billion ripples or a billion ripples or something like that I don't remember what it is but there's a, it's not like Bitcoin where there's going to be 23 million there's you know a billion or two billion or something of these things already floating around. And it's the concept of what's called a market cap. And so this is a financial education outside of cryptocurrency, but it really applies to cryptocurrency right now. A market cap is actually really simple to calculate. You look at how many outstanding shares in something there are and the current price. You multiply those two numbers and you get a market cap. So to make it really simple, if I issued shares in Survival Podcast and there were 100 shares and the current price of those shares was $10, then the market cap of Survival Podcast would be $1,000. Right? 100 shares times $10 is $1,000. Well, if you took that price prediction, you looked at how many circulating Ripple there were, and you divided it, it was something like a $7 trillion market cap. And this was a prediction for like over the next 12 months. And it, I think it was even bigger. It was ridiculous. It was more than the entire market cap of all cryptocurrency put together times about 10. And, and so you immediately know that that source is not to be trusted because that doesn't work. So just pay attention. If you're, if you're dabbling in this stuff and you're, you're seeing somebody out there on a board somewhere or on a show somewhere saying, I think this is going to go to like $500 within the next 12 months. You're like, oh, well, I'm going to be rich. 
at least calculate the market cap. Because some of these new tokens and stuff, they're issuing 2 billion tokens, you know, or 500 million tokens, you know, or a, 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 you know, a billion tokens, something like that. And, and it makes the upward price of that entity limited. The more there are, the more divisible you are by your market share. I had somebody recently say, I made a comment about this, and they said, what do you mean? Ripple's market cap's been bigger than Litecoin's for a long time, because they said it was going to go past Litecoin. And I said, you know, check the market cap. Now, it's been bigger. It's been higher. Well, the total number's bigger, but the price per unit is much smaller because of the quantity. Just a little piece of advice there thrown in at the end. Uh, let's take another one. Um, this is uh, an example of economic illiteracy and hatred. There seems to be a segment out there, and it does seem to be kind of the SJW left, who's probably one of the biggest customers of Uber and Lyft, um, that, that seems to have like a hatred for Uber and Lyft. Now, this guy doesn't, he's a retiree. He's writing for a blog called Mr. Money Mustache, and this was published on 11-22-17, but in the article he mentions that this experience was in 2016, so he's waited a year to get this stuff out. Um, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but I'm going to give you kind of the gist of it. And, and I'm going to tell you right where either he's ignorant of economics or he's ignorant of how they work. I'm not sure. Um, he says, but during, so he's talking about using as a, as a, a pastor. But during these luxury executive rides, I'd often get to talking with the driver. We would talk about life, family, money, and business. I always inquired about their experience with rideshare driving. And the response was inevitably something like this. Uber driver. Uh, oh, it's pretty good. On a good day, I'll make a hundred bucks, sometimes even two hundred if I work it and stay up late. Uh, Mr. Money Mustache, is that your profit after subtracting the cost of driving? Uber driver, no, that doesn't include gas, but I'll only use like not even a full tank, maybe thirty bucks. Hmm, I would think to myself, if this driver is burning through thirty dollars worth of gas, twelve gallons, they're probably covering over two hundred fifty miles, whether they realize it or not. It's costing them one hundred twenty-five dollars and direct car costs before even accounting to the damage to their health or risk of injury. Thus, the net profit might be as low as fifty dollars for a big day on the road and five bucks an hour. Okay, now, uh, where the hell does this tool get the one hundred twenty-five dollars from? So let's think about the expense uh, of your vehicle. You have your vehicle payment. okay? You have that payment whether you use it for Uber or not. I guess there's a depreciation in the value of your vehicle. But we get nowhere near that we, it costs us $125 to drive 250 miles at the rate of gas consumption at $30 worth of gas. We just don't. There's no, there's only one way. There's only one way that we can get close to that. And, and, and I'll tell you exactly what it is. And it's, if he knows this, then he's a real idiot. He's not just an idiot, he's an idiot's idiot. Because the whole point of this cost is to defer income with a phantom expense. And that would be the mileage deduction. And I think what this tool did, and you'll read the whole article if you want to, because once you understand this, it's not worth reading in my opinion. Um, driving 250 miles for work, for business, for direct business activities, which almost every mile you clock in Uber would be one of those things. The, the tax deduction rate is 53.5 cents a mile um, in 2017. 
250 miles means you would write off $132 of expense. Now, if he wants to say that's a direct expense, and he's going to say that it's going to cost you $125 to run your vehicle for the day, um, that's the only way I get there. And I actually go higher because I'm at $132 at 250 miles just in mileage, plus I'm at $30 worth of gas. So now I'm at uh, $162 plus some wear and tear on the vehicle, prorate your tires, prorate your insurance, all that shit. What does that mean? What does that all mean? That means Uber drivers don't pay income tax. That's, that's what every one of these hit pieces leaves out. Uber drivers do not pay income tax. I'll get the other flawed logic in a second. But, but So in the end, if you say somebody made $10 an hour, if they work 40 hours a week, that's $400. Bucks. But it's not like making $400. Bucks. It's, it's more like making about $5 to $5.50 because you're going to pay no tax on it. You're not going to pay any tax on it. You don't have any income. It's a business. You have no when you write the expenses off, you have no income. Do you understand that? So whatever you make, you're going to put in your pocket. You're not I'm telling you if you're an Uber driver and you're paying any significant income tax on your Uber earnings, your Lyft earnings, you don't know how to run an expense side of things. Cuz you can't make money on paper. And that's what these people are saying. You can't make... You're not supposed to. It's like when somebody said to Donald Trump during the campaign, well, you, you hardly pay any taxes. He said, that's because I'm smart. There's a lot of things I can object to Donald Trump that he said in the past, but, but being smart by not paying taxes is not one of them. If you don't have to pay taxes, don't pay taxes. Now, one of the other things this guy says in all of this is, if you really want to make money, you have to do it full-time and hustle. Well, no shit! You're telling me that the people that bust their ass, that build up their reputation, that are out there all the time, that learn the ins and outs of things, that do it as a full-time business, earn more money than you when you went out as an idiot with no knowledge of anything, including how taxes work, for a couple weeks farting around with it during your spare time. No shit they make more money than you. No shit they do better than you. Anybody that becomes really good at anything does better than people that don't. It's called the free market, and that's why I think people hate this thing. But the, 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 the summation here is that here's what he basically, if you read this, he says, these people don't know how much money it costs them to run their car for a month. You've got to be shitting me. Here's the reality. If there was no profit in driving for Uber and Lyft, when you went somewhere and tried to use it, no one would show up and pick you up. Because unlike a government entity, an individual driver for Uber or Lyft can only lose money for so long before they don't have enough money to pay for their car, and they're not coming to pick you up anymore, morons. I'm not saying you get rich doing this. I'm saying there's profit in it, and there's people that know how to maximize profit, there's people that know how to hustle for it, and there's people that half-ass it, and they get half-ass results. And this is why the left hates Uber and, and Lyft. It is a merit-based system. It's a merit-based system. The better you do, the more you get. And you don't pay taxes. And by the way, do you know what? I don't know about Lyft, but I know for a fact Uber doesn't make money in the United States. They're not profitable in the United States. They are afoot in the United States because of investor confidence in their company. They have enough investment money that they're able to continue to maintain a presence in the United States. They don't. It's not like they're making a shitload of money while their drivers go broke. 
It, it's a simple thing. You want to make money in Uber, you, there's, there's rules to follow, and you have to maximize what your potential is. But I know way too many people making full-time incomes with Uber and Lyft for you to tell me it's not profitable. I'm talking people that walked away from their jobs. And I'm not saying it's the greatest job in the world, but it offers a lot of freedom. And I know a lot of people that are doing the Uber, they're doing Uber, and they're doing Lyft, and they're doing the Amazon stuff. So there's money in this. I'm not saying it's right for everybody. I don't want to do it. But it's about structuring it the right way. It's about understanding money. It's about understanding numbers. It's about understanding tax law, taking every deduction that you can. And it's about maximizing the system. And if you can't do that, then it's not for you. And this guy's a dumbass, and it's not for him. Anyway, there's a link to the whole article if you want to read it. But every time I read one of these hit pieces, I'm like, no one ever even mentions that these people don't pay any taxes unless they're stupid. Because, again, at, at 53 cents a mile of write-off, you're not making money on paper, and that's a good thing unless you're a dumbass. Let's take another one. This next one uh, comes from Carlos. He says, hey, Jack, big fan. I just started on the podcast when I said one early in, you talked about char changing hot water heater to solar powered. My hesitant to say the least wife agreed. It's a great idea upon further research. It's more expensive than I thought. How should I go about calculating the right price to get the job done? 75-gallon tank. Thanks, Carlos. Well, I, Carlos, I can't tell you whether or not it's a good deal for you or not. Only you can figure this out, and I can't even guess because you didn't tell me where you lived or how much water you used or whatever. You told me you have a 75-gallon tank, and that doesn't really mean a hill of beans. In fact, the size of that tank could be a detriment if you don't use a lot of hot water rapidly uh, to, to, to kind of empty it out once it gets in there. So let's talk about what solar hot water is and why it's generally a good investment compared, this is the most important thing, compared to photovoltaic panels for electrical production. Solar hot water is a simple process of putting specialty equipment that holds water it generally on the roof of your home. It takes the sun's energy, it turns it into heat, this warms the water uh, significantly before it is sent to your hot water heater, thereby making your hot water heater and the element inside of it do a hell of a lot less work and use a hell of a lot less electricity. The reason this is generally a good investment is because one of your leading electrical expenses in your home other than air conditioning and heat, is going to be heating of hot water. It actually takes quite a bit of energy to heat water up to, let's say, 130, 135 degrees, whatever you keep your water heater at, and hold it there. All right? So the more electricity we use, the bigger our electric bill. This is actually not that difficult to calculate, though if you can figure out about how much hot water you're using. Now, you should have the total water usage of your home on your water bill if you're on some sort of city water where they bill you for it or you're going to have to estimate it. But in general, you can take a look at what you do with hot water, and there are numbers available to help you figure out well how much that usually is. So it would be washing dishes and taking showers would be the main things, and washing clothing if you use the hot water setting uh, in your in your washing machine. I don't think it really applies that much to dishwashing because I don't think that dishwashers rely on the water being preheated. And then what we do is we say, well, this is how much it costs a year for this household to use hot water. And this is how much in our climate uh, with this system it will cost to uh, how, how much it will reduce that cost by. Here's how much the system costs. And then we divide that and we get our years to return of investment. A while ago, and I haven't looked at this in a long time, 
But a while ago when I checked into this, the average ROI was about six years, which is a hell of a lot better than photovoltaic. However, let me say this. In the time between when you listen to that and now, almost nine years have gone by. They had tankless hot water heaters nine years ago. The advances and the efficiency in tankless hot water heaters today are in many ways exceptional compared to what they were just nine years ago. And it is probably the case that going to a tankless on-demand hot water heater will have a much faster return of investment for you than keeping your old school water tanks and pumping hot water into them. That said, I haven't done either one. Uh, neither has been compelling enough for me to get off my butt and do it with all the other things that I want to do. However, this is basically my plan. At any point that I feel um, one of my hot water heaters needs to go away to hot water heater heaven, um, it will be replaced with a tankless heater. And the other thing that really helps us is we have two relatively small hot water heaters. We don't have like one big one. Uh, and that that provides hot water to two different parts of the house. Uh, specifically, one side is what I call my bathroom, and the bathroom upstairs that never gets used. Uh, and the other one would be my wife's bathroom. But the one that's on my side does like the dishes and, and stuff like that. So the hot water comes out of the sink, comes from there. And the hot water that goes to the washing machine comes out of the one on the other side of the house. So we have two smaller units sharing the load, and our impact on hot water seems to be pretty low for our household. They're both really brand new. They were both put in because the old ones were screwed uh, when this person sold the house. So they're, they're, they're fairly new. Uh, they're high efficiency. Um, but either one of them, if they ever have to go to hot, weeder, hot water heater heaven, uh, I am probably going to tankless. Once you go to tankless, solar doesn't make a lot of sense. I guess it does because you got warmer water coming in. It depends on what time of day whether that water coming in is going to be hot or not, I guess. so. Um, I still think it's worth considering. I think if you really want to do solar, uh, whether it's for tax breaks or for environmental reasons or whatever, if you really want to do solar, you should look to hot water before you look to photovoltaics, or you should do the ROI case on both of them and compare them in deciding which one to do first. I do think solar photovoltaic is dropping in price and will continue to do so. And I do think within two to five years, it will become very, very common for the average person to put some sort of photovoltaics on their home. Not in all climates, but in a lot of the United States. I think it, it, it's going to drop that way, and storage is going to continue to drop. And I think we'll see more distributed electrical production than even the most optimistic realists have right now. There are the starry-eyed environmentalists that think we can power lightsabers with solar panels or what have you, and they're going to have to wait a while before that. Well, they're never going to get what they want, not in their lifetimes. Um, but we, we are going to move more and more toward that, which is a bi even bigger reason that I wouldn't invest in photovoltaics unless I needed it for a specific reason. I wouldn't do it on economics right now, even if you could show me a decent ROI, because I know that we're approaching a point, a tipping point, where it's going to get so much better, it's worth waiting for. I do have a link uh, to a web page that shows you exactly the things to look for to calculate your ROI on solar hot water. It's in the show notes for you. Next up, JP in Georgia says, Question. What are your thoughts about the Henry Lever Action Rifle all-weather rifle as an all-around hunting rifle? Can you also comment on the two calibers, 30-30 and 45-70, as it pertains to ballistics for hunting? 
Background, I'm new to firearms in general, three years, and even newer to hunting. I'm interested in continuing to hunt deer and make my way up to bigger game like moose. Uh, from limited experience speaking to other hunters, the majority that use the tried-and-true bolt action in various calibers, on the other hand, want to go with something unique and different, at least from what I often see. I have shot lever action and have had a blast. I would be lying if I didn't admit I love the look and feel as well. Ultimately, my goal is to become a better hunter and enjoy the tool I use. Would love your thoughts on the rifle as well as the two calibers I mentioned, JP and Georgia. Well, not a lot of mooses in Georgia, JP. So if you're going to go for moose, you're going to be traveling and have a hell of a lot more money into your moose hunt than you would for than you would into your gun. So I don't know that I would make the decision solely on the fact that one day this gun needs to be used for moose. But of your two calibers, your 30-30 and your 45-70, one is pretty good at making moose into moose steak, and the other one would be marginal at best, and I wouldn't touch it uh, as, as my primary option. And that one I wouldn't touch for moose is the 30-30. We're talking about 1,200-pound and up animals here. Um, it's not that you can't kill a moose with a 30-30. It's not that quite a few moose have not been killed with a 30-30. It's not what I want to do. 4570 makes moose into moose chops. Moose chops really, really good. It's good at killing moose. However, I would not recommend this gun in either of these calibers if what you want is an all-around hunting rifle. If you want a rifle for the Georgia woods, either of these will be just fine. They're both, in essence, about 200-yard cartridges. Um, they are at, they're both at their best in kind of brush hunting, woods hunting scenarios with shots under 100 yards. The 3030 is a damn deadly cartridge on deer. And for all the people that say, uh, you know, that's undergunned, it's obsolete, et cetera, there's been an awful lot of deer that went to deer heaven uh, at the, the front muzzle of the 3030. And as I've always said, death does not come in degrees. If it's dead, it's dead enough. And it's a damn good deer round. And that's what it's good for. You can kill other things with it, and certainly any deer-sized game would be shootable with it, and you know, responsibly. If you went out west for pronghorn, the 30-30 is fine for killing pronghorn. Not so good for making those 250, 300, 350 yard shots that you may have to make on a pronghorn hunt, though. All right, 45-70 becomes a decent 200-yard cartridge. For the average shooter, when we drop the bullets down to about 250 grains and we use the Lieberlution stuff from Hornady with the polymer tip and all that so we can fire our lever action without blowing ourselves up as the bullet of one goes into the primer of the other and sets off the whole magazine, blah, 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 blah. Right? So what we do, though, when we go to that, that 250-grain, 45-caliber bullet is we really drop our sectional density down, and trust me, it will blow a freaking coffee can-sized hole through the lungs of a deer or a boar. But with moose, I mean, if I'm going moose hunt as a once-in-a-lifetime thing, I want a hole through the moose, okay? I want blood trail if that thing leaves. I want to be able to find it. I don't want to spend all the money and time and dreaming on going on a moose hunt and, and have one hole in a moose. I want two if possible. There's no guarantees, but there's better cartridges than either of these for that. Now, we take and we load that 4570 up really, really hot. And we put some, you know, 350, 400 grain, even some 500 grain pills in it, 
It'll kick like a mule. Uh, we can actually approach loads close to the 458 wind mag out of the damn thing uh, without blowing the gun apart. Now, it's not really that high, but it, it, it's closer than you'd think. It's closer to that than it is to factory loads. All right, It, it crosses the, mid, the median point between the two extremes, I'll tell you that. And it's damn good moose fodder. And it's also probably 150 yard on the outside shot. Moose hunting generally is not open country hunting, though, and you're probably not going to have long shots. But, again, let's say you get lucky, you put in for year after year after year, you draw a tag up in Maine, you go hire a guy, you travel from Georgia to Maine, and you have that shot that's on the outside edge and you're not that confident with it, and you can't take that shot, and that, that, that hunt of a lifetime ends without a moose. That's if Because you, you're the one that brought the moose into this. So I'm back to if you want to shoot deer in Georgia, go ahead. Whether you're going to shoot a moose or not, if you want an all-around hunting gun, it, to me that means that I call you up and say, hey, dude, you just want a trip with Jack Spierko hunting deer in Texas, and we're going to be out on the, uh, uh, the, uh, the West Texas uh, plateaus, and you're going to have 250, 300-yard shooting that your gun's capable. That's all-around. That, that's what all around means to me. That means that you, you, you beat somebody and, and, and you get an opportunity to hunt elk in, in Colorado, you're comfortable shooting an elk with it at the ranges that are typical of that type of hunting. That's all around. And you want a lever gun. And you know, a lot of people are going, it's not a lever gun. You gotta, listen, you want a lever gun? I have an have a incredible solution for you. Browning lever action rifle, BLR. You can get the Browning Lever Action Rifle in 306. Now you got an all-around hunting gun. It's a lever gun. It comes in various different forms and flavors and stock options, and you can get basically an all-weather one. It will cost you a little bit more than a Henry because it's worth it. And here's the beauty. You can have those nice, pointed, sharp-nosed bullets, and you don't have to worry about blowing yourself up because the Browning Lever Action Rifle uses a magazine that feeds from below, very similar to something like a Remington 7600 pump gun. And that's what I would recommend. And you can get that in 308. You can get it in 306. You can get it in 300 Winchester Magnum. Now, you want an all-around, long-range shooting uh, lever-action rifle, a 300 Win Mag, that's that's pretty damn good. That's that's putting you in that category. There's various other short magnums, Winchester short magnums. I think the Winchester 300 Winchester short magnum. I think the 32 325 Winchester short magnum is available in that gun. Those are, you know, that would be at the edge of 338 Winchester uh, performance from a short magnum. Uh, the 270 Winchester short magnum I know is available there. Um, all of these, all of these, are better all-around cartridges. So I would decide for yourself. If you want a lever gun, I wouldn't rule it out. But I would look to Browning if you really want all-around. If you're comfortable buying a gun for your individual situation, the Henry's great. Either of those calibers. And I would lean probably to the 4570 because it does have more utility to me than the 3030 does. You're going to have restricted range as it is. But, you know, even with just Remington green and yellow 300, what are they, 310 grain or 300 grain, 300 grain hollow points, man, I shot a big boar with one of those. It blew, like, you could put your fist through the dead gone pig. And it was a big pig with a big gristle guard. Uh, it, it is a hell of a knockdown weapon. And, and it's, I would lean to it over the 3030 in that gun. 
but I would never look at it as an all-around gun. I would look at it as a short-range brush gun, you know, that makes a big damn hole. Uh, with a lot of versatility in that, but all around I'd go to the BLR, just my opinion. This next one is a continuing follow-up on our discussion about um, taxes on vehicles in West Virginia and how I was kind of blown away you have to pay a tax because you own a vehicle. And uh, Ted made a comment on the blog, Ted K, and it really kind of struck me when I read the list as to something that we hadn't really said throughout this whole discussion that I kind of wanted to bring up today. Here's what Ted says. For those interested, here are 23 states and D.C. that do not charge property tax on cars. Alabama, D.C., Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, North Dakota, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Ohio, Oklahoma, Oregon, Pennsylvania, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Vermont, Washington, and Wisconsin. Here's what struck me on that. Long-time listeners of the show that know my history will know the following places are states that I've lived in. Florida, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Texas. Now, I've always seen those particular states as being very different on the Freedom Index. Uh, the property taxes and the regulations, etc., in New Jersey make Pennsylvania look like the promised land, and Texas does the same to Pennsylvania. Florida and Texas are very, very similar states from the Liberty Index quotient, in my opinion. Um, but you notice all of them made this list. Now, there's a direct correlation between me literally flipping my shit to hear that some of you are paying taxes on an automobile and me never having lived in a place where you have to pay taxes on your automobiles. Where you, you, you know, I mean, if, so, so for instance, when I hear that you're paying property tax in Tennessee or you're paying property tax in Florida or Pennsylvania, depending on the rates, I might be somewhat alarmed on the fact that you're paying such high property taxes on your house. But uh, the, the concept itself that there's tax on your real estate doesn't cause my head to split open any more so than any other run-of-the-mill tax. And it's probably more true for me that I'd be pissed about any tax than most people. Most people think taxes are necessary, my roads, my schools, that whole line of bullshit thinking. So the, the difference there is I've been conditioned like a cow to accept property tax on my real estate as just an evil that exists. I'm not going to say a necessary evil because I don't believe they're necessary. But I will say a necessary evil with a caveat. In other words, if I want to own real estate, the acceptance of property taxes and using them to leverage and offset other expenses is a necessary evil I have to, con I have to deal with. So I will call it a necessary evil is, is how I've been conditioned to view it. But not necessary from a standpoint of, well, somehow we have to pay for schools. I think we could pay for schools without taxing people's property. I think the property tax on any property is insidious. But yet I don't flip my shit over it. But yet when you tell me, well, I pay tax on my you know 2013 Ford pickup truck for owning it in West Virginia, I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you people? And I bet if we dug into it, there's taxes that we have here in Texas that don't exist in some of these other states that you would equally flip your shit when you heard about them, or if your state tried to enact them. Now, I don't know if that's really true, because Texas is pretty light on the tax footprint overall. But we have our high property taxes. Taxes in, in, in Texas, real estate taxes are high. 
And it's probably because we don't have some of these other taxes. And sales tax is relatively high as well. Again, most parts of the state, not everywhere, most parts of the state is eight and a quarter. The state's portion is six and a quarter, and usually local governments, et cetera, take up to 2%, leaving you at eight and a quarter. And that, that's pretty high when you think about it. It's getting close to a 10% sales tax. And in the end, we all pay taxes, and what we really need to look at when we're choosing a state is based on how we live, what our tax footprint is. And I've always taught that. That, yeah, maybe this state has a state income tax, but if you have almost no property taxes, and let's say uh, uh, another state you would have you know, $10,000 a year probably, you have to do the math and actually figure out which one takes away more from you and understand what your tax impact is. And if somebody's a renter, they'll say, well, I don't pay property tax. Yes, you do. You pay mine. You pay my, as, as, as their landlord, you pay my property tax. You don't think I put that in your rent? But you have to look at what's average rent, and then you look at average rent in another state, and then a lot of times you're going to have housing impacts, but one of those is going to be you know, property tax. But, I mean, the bigger thing for me is just the realization that we have all become complacent with taxation. Even those of us that are the loudest critics of it, like myself, I get really grumbly you know, when I file my my annual income tax return. And I usually, because of the way I structure things, I actually get a return. I get money back. I get a, a rebate, not a refund, a rebate on the taxes I overpaid. So it's not like it's a horrible time of year for me where I have to whip out the checkbook and pay them more, but the, the, the crushing reality of the total bill that I pay these pricks every year is put in my face. Mr. Spirigo, this year you paid these pricks $60,000. Great, especially since I'm so happy with their performance, you know. And I got to listen to one of my favorite radio guys constantly say something stupid. Ed Wallace here with the show Wheels. He, he's an advocate for raising the gas tax to fix the roads because, of course, the government actually would use the money to fix the roads. And he, what he keeps say, saying is most people don't mind paying taxes if they get what they want out of paying the tax. Well, if I got what I want out of paying the tax, the first thing I'd want is for it to be voluntary and it wouldn't be a tax anymore. It would be a fee, and I'd be okay with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just want you to think about like how many taxes we pay that, yeah, overall you're disgusted about them. You're not happy about them, but yet you accept them. Ted commented on the same thread. Uh, I asked him, I said, do they tax your freaking chickens? Cause he said they tax livestock. I said, are you talking like cattle or are we talking like chickens? He says in Missouri, yes, they ask for all kinds of livestock, cattle, chickens, goats, Even even breeding dogs and exotics like ostriches. It's small but present. I think about the one to two dollars for my total of thirty goats. They ask for farm equipment, construction equipment, airplanes, and RVs. Would scan us in a copy if you're interested. I, I don't want to have a heart attack and have a, a conniption and have my brain fly out of my eyes, Ted. So no, I don't want to see it. But there's another example. Like you get taxed on your construction equipment, your farm equipment, your RV. You pay a tax on it? You pay a tax on your chicken? I don't care if it's a penny a chicken. What right do you have to tax my freaking chickens? But if you grow up with it, well, that's just a necessary evil we have to deal with because we live here. And that shows you the insidious nature of taxation. It makes people behave like cattle who have seen the electric fence long enough that they know the fence is electric, and they know if they walk into it, it's going to hurt. But they haven't even tested the fence in 20 years. The posts are rusted to the ground. The, 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 the bush is up on the wire. There's no way that electric fence works. 
But if that cow's ever been zapped even once, it won't touch that wire ever again. That's how we've become with taxation. Just something to think about. When somebody tells you, it's just a small increase. Oh, think of the children. we got to have them on roads. we got to have them on... Yeah, yeah. Let's take another one. Next one comes from Brian. Brian says, first blockchain solution to target higher education. You're right, universities are dying. And it's bitdegree.org. Says, perhaps not the perfect solution, but the first I've heard. A company called Bitdegree is looking to change how skilled laborers train no longer years-long antiquated education of our current university system. Bitdegrees uses tokenized system on the blockchain. Employees pay, employers pay students to complete certain targeted education programs based on their needs. Instructors are paid to produce the best content all online. Sponsors can set up scholarships or other incentives. Blockchains makes it easy to see when students complete their segments. Functional tests can be put on blockchain as well to serve as ranking for employers and incentives. Various other integrations for marketing, educational program gaps, etc. I've been able to—I haven't been able to dig deep into all the specifics, but it seemed like the first clear case for the next generation of how education fits into employment. As always, big thanks for all you do. Keep it up, Jack Brian. Brian, this is interesting. Now I have put a link to this thing. It's in a pre-ICO. So, so if you're not familiar with the term ICO, it's initial uh, coin offering. And that means that basically they're pre-selling all these tokens uh, so that you can buy them early and make money on them. We talked about that last week, so I won't go deep into it, but that's what's going on. I am not endorsing this company. I have a huge skeptics radar. Whenever I see these, these fancy websites with all these promises about how this one token is going to change the world, and I'll tell you a little bit of why. I am a huge fan of blockchain. I think blockchain is going to change almost every industry out there. But I don't think it's necessary to do a lot of things that it can do. It can just do them better. So why don't we already have this type of a system? And that's because people aren't ready for it yet. I mean, you think about everything you just said. Okay, so we're going to compensate instructors. We're going to let people set up scholarships. We're going to let employers pick and choose the, the, the courses that students will do. We'll verify that the student has completed the course. What do we need blockchain to do that for? Now, don't get me wrong. Again, I'm going to tell you, I think blockchain can do it better than current technologies. But online education isn't new. Students being able to complete online examinations and being graded on them isn't new. It'll actually take a lot more work to adapt blockchain to do this than to use existing technologies and platforms to just go ahead and do it. So why do a blockchain? Well, I think, again, long-term it can be better. Long-term it can be part of an individual's profile. As it occurred on blockchain, it can be transmitted between blockchains, become part of, let's say, your permanent record, part of your, um, basically, your new form of a resume. Your resume is dead. I've said the resume is dead for 10 years, but, I mean, it's really dead when you get something like this going. Uh, you know, LinkedIn is the de facto resume today, but th this is... This is the death nail of things like LinkedIn. Um, but we don't need it if there's this big of a market for it right now. And the, the reality is the online education systems are out there, are a small piece of the education as a whole, and the big corporatocracy that is the university system, the scam university system, isn't dead yet. It's being killed right now. And this is, this, it, here's the thing this company may be genuine. 
their ICO may be a good opportunity, and they be, may be the first company to skin this, and it might be in two years or ten years that this really pays off. But I don't know. I haven't dug into their ICO. I haven't read their white paper. I am specifically not endorsing this. I am not suggesting that you buy into it. I'm only looking at the concept. And, and But in the end, it doesn't matter if it's blockchain or it doesn't matter if it's basic software. There is no need for 90% of the education that's acquired in colleges today to take place in a college. I think about 10% of it there's a real need for, and that number will fluctuate based on what your degree's in. I think things that are kind of engineering-oriented and stuff like that, or medically-oriented and all, there's more of a case for being face-to-face -face with teachers. But even we even have technology that does a large part of that. But you're not going to dissect a cadaver online. Yet. Yet. Because I think the days of cadavers will go away soon with virtual reality, and then it's on. I mean, one of the things you have to understand is I think that we'll get to a point where your school can look like a school, if that's what you want, in your room. You know? I mean, that's where we're going with virtual reality. Do we need blockchain for this? And this is where I, I myself have some skeptical components to, to what I think. Do we really need blockchain to do some of the things that they're proposing that blockchain do? And I don't know that we do. There's, there's a couple things that blockchain does really, really well. So this is what you have to ask yourself. Do you want to accomplish one of these things? One thing blockchain does really, really well is make things as public as you want them to be or as private as you want them to be up to the point of being completely anonymous and untraceable. So if there's a real need to make something public or private, blockchain's good for it. And that's probably one of the strongest things that it can do because then it becomes auditable and a truth teller. And it's also possible to make things completely private but have the ability for the person that is maintaining the privacy to choose to make that information viewable and auditable to select individuals. Education, that's pretty good for, isn't it? Maybe I don't want the world to know my educational background. But when you're going to hire me, and I tell you I have a specific certification, and I want to be able to prove it, being able to prove it instantaneously and beyond refute, pretty cool. But do we need blockchain to do that? If you would have went to the BigC.org website eight years ago and looked up RCDD status for Jack Spearco, you would have seen currently active RCD certification, land certification, OSB certification. You can verify that like that. Just by, but, but it's completely public. I had no control of whether you could verify that or not. Maybe that gives away information about me. I don't want public. I don't know, but in, in the end, is anybody really going to upset that somebody knows they have an engineering degree or a, a technical certification? I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. You go look it up now, not found. Why? Because I didn't complete my CEUs and they threw me out. So it works. The technology that they built, the Bixie website, pfft, that's 20-year-old tech. Bixie had a website when, you know, like almost nobody had a website because they're in the tech world. I, I, so I, I don't know how necessary this is for education. But then the question becomes, well, what can you do with it that empowers education 
and makes all of these things more doable. But one way or another, what you're seeing is every industry in the world, including the whole evolving industry of cryptocurrency, look at education and say there's an opportunity here. Now, you have to think about what that really means. That means that this thing that Jack Spirico has been telling you, that the, the education sector is going to come crashing to the ground over the next couple decades, isn't something only I know. The biggest players in industry and business know this too. There's too much money there for them to ignore it. There's over a trillion dollars in student loan debt, and I bet you half of that never gets repaid. They're, they're going to hit a wall where it can't be repaid. And the world's going to change. And we'll save final thoughts on the education system for another story in a bit. This one comes from Kiernan, but again, I got this pretty much the same question from a couple dozen people. Hi, Jack. Just wondering, what's your view about all the women coming forward now and making claims about men who supposedly touch them or look sideways at them, etc.? Why have the mainstream media honed in on this subject now? Is it as simple as the media are short on news recently and they have not been trying to make big events to feed them? Or is the media and the ruling class setting the stage for something else? Just wondering what your thoughts are on it. Thanks, regards, Kiernan. And basically the upshot that I've gotten from most people is why now and why so many all of a sudden. So I'll tell you, I think it's a, it's a combination of things. I think, one, during hysteria like this, if you hold a grudge against somebody, the mere accusation right now can damage them and possibly cause political suicide or career suicide for them. So I think there is some of that where it's maybe not that nothing happened, but nothing happened that really is to the level that somebody should lose their job over it or something like that. Uh, one I heard about recently, kind of a minor name person, I don't remember who, but the concept was they were at a party, uh, he got drunk, the girl got drunk, they shared a cab ride home, he tried to kiss her, she rebuffed him, he said, I'm sorry, and but now, ten years later, it's sexual harassment. Two people getting a drunk ca cab drunk together. Maybe it's inappropriate that maybe he, he leaned in to kiss her or something. But this is not sexual harassment. Especially when she's like, I don't want to do this. He's like, oh, all right, sorry, whatever. And I think he said something to the effect of, like, you're lucky I'm interested in you or something like that. But he never threatened her job, never went back at it again. Never. I mean, like, just not. But then you got people like that I think really are doing this. Now, I think there's also, like, different categories of this. So there is this shit going on in Congress. Now, I think there's something here. I think there's something here. Um, they have a slush fund. They have a slush fund that, like, basically when a congressman and senator gets accused of sexual harassment, that, like, a legal team goes into action. They, they, they get on top of it right away to contain it. They talk to the woman, and they say, basically, here's a check for $26,000 or $25,000 or whatever we figure that your, your emotional distress is worth in this. Here's a non-disclosure agreement, and if you ever talk about this, you have to give the money back. And I believe the number that I've heard of money that's in this slush fund, and I could be wrong, but it's like $27 million has been spent out of it over the years. And the average... Um, settlement that I've heard about, because they've had some of this stuff come out now, is about $25,000. Now, there could be a big settlement in there that throws this whole thing off, okay? There could be some little ones in there that uh, 
bring it back around. The only number I can use is about $25,000 because of the numbers I've heard tossed around. And if we take $27 million and divide it by $25,000, we come up with about 1,080 instances. If we, if we assume there's some big ones in there that we don't know about, some are you know, roughly double the size, let's say we cut that in half to 540. Folks, I want to talk to you about the number 540 and how interesting that number is. Uh, the total combination of senators and congressmen is about 535. <laughs> That's basically one per congressman. Now, I'm absolutely certain that there are Congress people that didn't have anything to do with any of this and they didn't do nothing about it, and they just were surprised to find out about this lush fund as you are. And I'm sure there's some of the chronic users of it, like what's his name, the the, the senior member of, uh, of the, I guess, senior member of Congress right now that's in deep shit. What's his name? John Conyers. It seems like he's maybe dipped into that thing more than once. Um, but here's like, my problem with this is not only is this going on, they've created an environment that basically guarantees it'll happen. What do you think about what they've done? They've taken high-powered men who are generally psychopaths. And yes, I know women serve in Congress too, but there's more men than women by large. Um, with a massive amount of power, Most of these people are very, very wealthy, even if they weren't very wealthy when they went into Congress because of laws they passed that enable them to become wealthy with, with legalized insider stock trading alone. Okay, And they've created a situation where if you end up with a sexual harassment allegation, someone fixes it for you and pays for it with somebody else's money, and the person who you did it to is forbidden from speaking about it in fear of having to get a bill to pay the money back. So... Why so much now, at least in regards to Congress and the Senate? I'll tell you why. Because once one person does it, and it's really evident and really clear, they're not going to go after this person and try to get the money back because it's there's goo all over everybody's face in it, and it doesn't look good. And the last thing that they're going to be able to get away with now is victimizing the original victim. Guess what? All these other women that have legitimate bitch issues, that they, like, they have a legitimate thing to bitch about, something really did happen. And it probably did or they wouldn't have been paid money. I'm not saying there ain't no women that will go out there and abuse a system like that, because I'm sure they will. But, I mean, let's face it. If that's you, you're probably blackballed at that point. You're probably out of serving in, you know, serving as an aide to Congress or something like that. You're probably, like, part of your agreement is go do something else. So it ends your career that you were working on. Many of these people are working in that space because one day they want to run for office, etc. Or they want some kind of political appointment. So a lot of times it could be the end of that opportunity for you. For twenty-five grand, People generally don't sell out that cheap. Basically, they're in a situation where they feel they can't win. They don't want to be in the public limelight. They'll take some money, they'll go away, and they feel like something good happened out of it. And then they learn about this. They probably didn't know at the time that, hey, you know, Congressman Jackass is not the one that paid the bill, and there's a lot more than just you. There's, you know, $27 million worth of this shit's been paid out. Well, at that point, you're going to get a whole bunch of women showing up and going, hey, this happened to me. 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 And good. Because the, the, the ta I don't care what you think about government. I don't care if you're an anarchist like me, if you're a liberal Democrat, if you're a socialist, if you're a conservative Republican. I think we should all be able to agree that the United States taxpayer should not be paying 
for sexual harassment settlements for members of our government, especially elected officials. Like, that's just not acceptable. And we should get an accounting of every single penny and who it was paid on behalf of and if the victim wants to be named, who the victim was and their story. I don't think we should get every single victim named unless they approve it because they may not want to be in public limelight. But we should know, like, how many of these payments were there? And is there a congressman with, like, 50 of them versus a congressman with one? I got more questions for the guy with 50 first. Now, when we look at it in other realms, look at something like Harvey Weinstein. This guy had incredible power. But once one person comes out with it and it's well-received by the media and people are on the side of the victim, well, then all the other victims come out. This is, this is not the first time something like this has occurred. It's just the first time it's occurred in such numbers beyond one person. Look at Jerry Sandusky from Penn State University. Once one brave young man stood up and said, yes, I was abused as a boy, all of a sudden, boom, they all come out. Now, on the other side of it, we've gotten to a point where it's becoming a witch hunt, and you can make these allegations with no evidence. No evidence whatsoever. And, and that is scary as shit. It really is. And it also shows flaws in our, our electrical, electoral system. So right now we have this special election going on between uh, Roy Moore, who's accused by like seven women of sexual misconduct, and this Democrat who the people of their state in general do not want. Like Roy Moore is a slam dunk to win this thing without this accusation. So is it real, or is, you know, is it live, or is it Memorex? We don't know. And you can say you know, but you don't know. You don't know. And I'll tell you how you'll know. If he wins the seat, and the allegations don't go away, and the women making them don't go away, and the thing continues, and somebody pushes for like criminal charges or civil charges, they're probably legitimate. If he wins the seat... And all of a sudden, they all, everybody just goes away and no one talks about it anymore. It was probably a political hit. Notice the word probably. It's not definitely. But if the only motivation is to keep a guy from getting into office, then you, know, you probably have a political hit. But you don't know. Here's how I view that. If I were a voter, and I'm not, and I were in, what is it, Missouri or wherever the hell this is, that uh, this is going on, if I was a Republican, I would vote for Roy Moore. <gasps> oh, my God, no. no. Here's the reason why. If he did it, and you put him into the Senate, you have plenty of things you can do to get rid of him later. You have plenty of options. If you put this other guy in, you get somebody you don't want for six freaking years, and you have no other options, especially if you find out the guy was innocent and was fake. So if I was a Republican there, I'd, I'd vote for him. In my opinion, it won't really matter who you vote for, but go do what you want. But the flaw in the electoral system then is, how can you be stuck with this? See, the thing is, right now, if he drops out, there is no Republican nominee. It would have to be uh, write-in only. And you're in a situation where you either give away a Senate seat, which is a hell of a lot bigger of a deal than a House seat, or you put somebody in there that you really don't want, and there's no accommodation made for, hey, hey, these are extenuating circumstances here. If the man wants to bow out of the election, couldn't we have the opportunity to have a new nominee. We don't have it. We don't have a stand-in nominees. That's not constitutional. It could be. That's actually not that complicated to do, compared to a lot of different 
Uh, and there's actually nothing unconstitutional about it. The Constitution just doesn't specify it. But it actually specifies both parties run their own nomination. So the party can do whatever it wants. Might be an interesting thing, you know? This is how you end up with dead people on the ballot. Who lost? <laughs> It's somebody lost to a dead guy. I can't remember. I think it was John Ashcroft lost to a dead guy. When John Ashcroft was running, for, I think for a Senate seat 15 years ago or something like that, the guy he was running against on the Democrat side died. Still won. Still won. Couldn't be the dead guy. But the... The, the, the Democratic Party wasn't given the opportunity to say, you know what, since he's dead, <laughs> since he's dead, this is our nominee now. No. And it's almost like the system's rigged or something. You know, it's almost like the system's rigged intentionally. It's just crazy, isn't it? But as to why now, I think it's because women that have been victimized feel that they have a voice and they feel that they won't suffer repercussions so they feel more safe in coming out. However, I do think there are there are also women riding the wave of they're going to get even with somebody even if it's not true or they're going to ruin somebody's career because they don't agree with them or they're going to prevent somebody from getting elected because they don't want them in office. I think they're, the, both of those are mixed in. And we need to definitely separate accusations and allegations from evidence. And if we don't do that, we're doing everybody involved a disservice. Because the, the fact that you can just accuse somebody of something and they're immediately considered guilty of it because, well, it's sexual harassment and she's a woman, that's bullshit. And when you look at what women are being taught is sexual harassment today, it's, 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 it's moronic. Go, go look up social justice warrior sexual harassment on YouTube and watch women accuse men of attempting to rape them because they were told no to something. Like shit like that, right? So, like, it's clear. Like, again, I'm back to this. If you and I work together, and I find you attractive, and I've, you, know, you understand, women, that men actually do have to, in many instances, get up the courage to ask women out. They do. They don't always just feel like, oh, I'll just ask her out. She says no, whatever. Like, they have that little dialogue in their head, like, what am I going to say? And all. It's like when you were in high school. It's still there. So. I think you're attractive. I have that dialogue with myself. Maybe I'm a little bit socially awkward. It's at work. I never see you outside of work. I don't want to do it in email because that's, you know, kind of. But I happen to notice that you're in the copier room and nobody else is there. So I walk up and say, hey, I was just wondering if you'd like to maybe go out and have a drink after work or something like that. And you say, no, I'm not interested. And, you, and I say, okay, that's not sexual harassment. That's not sexual harassment. If I notice that you look nice and I say you look nice today, that's not sexual harassment. And I know some of you out there going, Jack, you're overplaying this. No, this is the kind of shit that people are being accused of sexual harassment for. One of the big companies I work for is a company called Sage Telecom, and we had a guy that almost lost his job over something like this, and all he literally did was tell the girl, you look very pretty today. But she said he said it where no one else could hear it, so she felt threatened. The two of them had actually the same story about what actually happened, but she was making such a scene about it. The company almost acquiesced, even though they knew they were wrong. Fortunately, this guy had like a brother-in-law that was an attorney that got involved and basically wrote a letter to them and said, you know how wrong you are here, and, and so would a court of law, and I really suggest that you don't do this. And it, it kind of all went away. But yeah. That's the kind of shit that's being said. So we got to really be careful here. 
And right now, if you're on the right, it's kind of easy, because other than Roy Moore, this is all hitting the left right now, isn't it? You know, the thing about pendulums is they always swing back the other way, and they do just as much damage. A pendulum is a two, uh, two-edged two sword. It cuts in both directions. Uh, let's take another one. This one will be quick, says uh, Stephen. says to me, thanks for answering my question several weeks ago. Uh, today, what tree would you plant to harvest for your own firewood? We bought a house on three acres two years ago and live in Hunt County, Texas. The house is all electric and heating goes high. Bought a wood stove and we'll be installing it this weekend. Uh, the other two acres are pasture land. I plan to plant two Fuji apples and peach trees in the spring. I'm thinking of planting some trees for firewood, but I don't know which one would grow fast and burn good. I would like to hear a show about beginning gardening. My father-in-law will be uh, planning a garden this spring, too. We'll probably definitely do a beginning gardening show soon because we're heading into that time of year. Uh, but on your, on your tree question, especially living in Texas, I only have one answer for you. Black locust. You can get them for next to nothing under a dollar a tree. They grow really fast. It's incredibly dense hardwood. It burns beautifully. Um, it coppices, so that means you don't have to cut the whole tree down. You can cut the tree down, you know, let's say uh, head height, and it'll grow back. And it'll do it over and over. You can cut it down waist height, whatever height you want, and it'll just keep growing back and keep growing back. Probably in about a seven to eight year cycle, though. So you're probably about seven to eight years from any real meaningful harvest of any tree that you would plant this spring. And I don't know how much you're going to get based on how much you're going to plant on an acre, but you can plant. Uh, locust very close to each other all along the property line and I'll recommend it as a Texas tree because it does good here and if it does good here it'll probably do good anywhere because my, my land is harsh uh, so that's what I'm going to recommend and I would check companies like Coldstream Farm and Lawyer's Nursery uh, to look for stock if you were in the north more northern especially northwestern climates northeastern climates where it, it rains a lot I would tell you to look at another great plant for this would be hazel, uh, hazelnut filberts. Uh, it's a great wood. You're going to get smaller pieces, but you should basically be cutting them down like you should be growing them in rows and cutting down one row every seven years. So you should have them on a seven-year rotation. So that's a lot of small wood. Now, your heating bill is high. You're not real far from me, and it doesn't get that cold here for that much duration. I would look into, if you have a heating problem, I'm not saying not, you know, you can put the wood stove in, that's great and use it, and it's wonderful and all. I'm just saying you, you, you probably want to look into, like, do you have a problem with uh, efficiency on your insulation? Check your doors, your windows, all of that good stuff. What kind of insulation you got in the ceiling? Um, because generally our heating bills aren't bad in, in north central Texas. It's our air conditioning bills that are expensive. I mean, right now, I'm running an air conditioner today, and it's December friggin' 4th. Um, we haven't turned the heat on this year yet. Um, there's been some nights where it's been pretty cold outside, but it hadn't got cold enough in the house that I need to turn the heat on yet. So I, I And my house was built in the 70s, in like 77, um, actually 79. My house was built in 1979 when interest rates were like 18%. And builders took every shortcut, and yet, so it's not exactly a, a a bellwether of efficiency, is what I'm getting at. So I'm looking at like some other issues there, and you know, look for sources of free and cheap wood. There's a lot of free and cheap wood around here. Probably the tree that's most available for wood around here is live oak and post oak and pin oak, right? Those three, and uh, they get used interchangeably, but they are three different actual trees. There's tons of it around, and it's incredibly good wood. 
but I wouldn't grow it for the purpose of firewood. I guess the other wood that you could grow here, and it would grow really well, it's also thorny and maybe more so than uh, than uh, locust, but mesquite. And if you did something like a honey mesquite or something, you'd have a yield off it that, that might actually be useful to you and, and basically pause it you can grind in a flower. So that would be something to look at as well. But that's even more. Like black locust ain't that bad with thorns, really. Especially the bigger the tree gets, the smaller the thorns get. Forget honey locust. Just forget it. It'll work, but you don't you don't want it. Trust me, you don't want it. Um, but black locust is where I would go with this. So um, next up, I have an email here from uh, Zach. And Zach says, Further confirmation, an Illinois university is consolidating departments and eliminating some administrators. See link below. When I graduated from the school in 2009, the enrollment was over 20,000. Now the most optimistic number I was able to find indicates full-time enrollment below 15,000. Before I even read the article to you, I want you to think about that. That's 25%. And this is Southern Illinois University. And this school was chartered in 1869. This, this isn't some fly-by-night diploma mill or something like that, other than I do think that universities have become diploma mills, but, but not not in the way that we would generally think of. Let me read this to you. The Chancellor of Southern Illinois University wants to eliminate academic departments and department heads amid plummeting enrollment and deteriorating finances. Chancellor Carlo Matamago announced his plan earlier this month. He says, stupid audio on there. They have to have advertisements on it because they can't afford the tuition, I guess. Anyway, Chancellor Carlo Monumago announced his plan earlier this month. He said it, could, uh, it would move related areas of study under the same roofs and foster easier collaboration. The Chancellor says eliminating department heads would also save the university $2.3 million annually. Monomango says his plan aims to save money, but he also sees reorganization as an opportunity to make the university's academic offerings more attractive to prospective students. Some faculty members support the plan, saying reorganization is long overdue. Opponents say eliminating departments will unleash complications. Montebago hopes to implement the changes by July 2018. Let me tell you exactly how this works. Some faculty members support the plan. They're the ones not losing their jobs. Some say that it will eliminate departments, will unleash complications. The complication is them losing their job. Because even the people in this system know that it's a wasteful system. And the people that will get to keep their jobs feel like, Oof, I made it. And the people that would lose their jobs feel like, well, man, they figured it out. But, I mean, here you go. This is the canary in the coal mine that I've talked about in other industries before that I've always tended to be right about. Um, I've been saying this is coming, and so many of you have said it's my hatred and loathing for the education system that gives me confirmation bias and what have you, and, and th th this is never going away. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Because why wouldn't it? I mean, this is what I would say to people that say that my assessment of what's going to happen to the education sector is wrong. Is, well, what, give me a reason that it should stay in its current form and we should expect that it will remain financially viable for the next 20 years. Go. And the only thing you'll have is blah, 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 government, blah, 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 monopoly, blah, 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 propped up. There's a point where all that shit wears off. Like, from, a, from a, sta a technical standpoint of what is the goal of these institutions supposed to be? To educate young people so that they can be better suited to careers. 
Now, you can say, but it's to make them more rounded, well-rounded adults, and it's the entire experience. No, the reason that people borrow $25,000 a year or more to go to these schools is because they're sold on the idea they'll get an education, they'll get a job. So then the question is, can we do that more efficiently and for less money? with better or equal results in the quality of the product coming out at the end? And the answer to that is an affirmative yes. Then why wouldn't we? Especially when you're... This is, this is the weak point in every argument you have to support this institution remaining the way it is. In the end, it still takes a 17-, 18-, 19-year-old kid willing to sign a piece of paper to use their name to acquire a debt of tens of thousands of dollars per year to attend an institution while they look at their older brother who graduated four years ago and is still serving coffee at Starbucks. Sooner or later, the money dries up, and that's what's happening right now. It's going to start with swelling the ranks of community colleges. More and more kids are doing that so they can cut the cost of their first two years of education. Many of them will realize it's bullshit in the middle of it and go do something else. Those that go on to, to the four-year universities, they're going to start charging more money, not less, as they lose students to try to make up for only teaching these kids for two years instead of four. And they're going to kill themselves. This is the snake eating itself by its tail. It's the beginning. You can read the article if you want to, but I, I guarantee you, I guarantee you stories like this will become normal by the end of next year. There won't be one here and one there. They'll become normal. And they're going to become really normal really fast in the states that are having population decline. That's why you're, you're seeing it come out of Illinois first. People are leaving. People that are going to Illinois already have degrees, already have careers, already have jobs, and they're going into Chicago for the opportunity. They're getting good-paying, high-paying executive positions and things like that. That's, that's the people going to Illinois right now. Everybody else is leaving. If you're a young person just starting your life and you live in a state like Illinois or New York, there is no compelling reason for you to stay there right now. None. None at all. It doesn't exist. No, I mean, family, sure, all that. But I'm talking about from a socioeconomic standpoint. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. These things are falling apart. Plan accordingly. Uh, last question comes in from Mike. Mike says, hey, Jack, I was wondering if you could tell me some of the things that are going on on the Survival Podcast Homestead right now. Uh, I enjoyed your show about planning for spring and all the things that you plan on doing, but I was wondering what is Jack Spirico actually doing right now in his own backyard? Um, a lot of it is planning, and I've kind of explained why that's the case right now. But there are some things going on. This this weekend, I did about 90% of completing uh, something that's pretty old technology as far as the, the world of the Internet would be, I guess, uh, being known, but homestead technology, uh, a rain gutter grow system. We have the five-gallon boxes with a hole in the bottom and the net cup, and they sit in a rain gutter. And uh, I think I might have mentioned that on my planning show, but I got... I got busy on that this weekend. I got the gutter installed with the two by fours. I got the ends uh, glued onto it. Uh, I got, I think, seven of the nine buckets made. I actually came up with a pretty cool way to put holes in the buckets other than using grow bags. I'll be doing a video soon and showing that. And I've got a few bit, bits and bobs more to do. Uh, I got the float valve installed, but the adapter that lets me go to the PVC piece that I put, that I attached to the uh, um, to the float valve, uh, back to garden hose, the valve, the, the piece itself, like the 75 cent piece from Lowe's, is leaking like a sieve. Not because it was attached poorly, but it's basically 
screws it, it's it's like a female hose a, a male it allows a male um, garden and a male garden hose uh, to attach to a female coupler and another female coupler to a a male threaded PVC piece and and then that goes to a barb that goes to the valve the the part in between it itself is just blowing water so the part's defective so uh, I got to go pick one of those up maybe I'll get to go do that today my wife's like well you should return it I'm like it's 75 cents. She was like, I would return it. I'm like, it's, I am not going to stand at customer service for freaking 15 minutes while some retard tries to figure out how his computer works to return that part. If it was uh, a hardware store like I used to go to when I was a kid, I'd walk in, the guy would say, oh, I'm sorry, here, here's another one. And I'd walk back out the door. But I'll just pay the 75 cents. Um, I might get two in case <laughs> two is one, one is none. I should have bought two in the first place. Uh, but that that's kind of my big project for right now. Uh, and the other thing I'll be working on is I talked about the the big timber frame pond. I'm not doing it yet, but it's a good probability that by next week I'll be laying timbers for that. Not for the whole system, but just for the pond itself uh, to get that done because that everything else gets built off of that. That's about it, guys. I am kind of moving into holiday mode. Um, I uh, you know I have no I have no mowing to do because the ducks have taken care of that. Plus, we're in a drought, so nothing is growing. Uh, the trees are all dormant. Um, the stuff that's coming out of the greenhouse and the aquaponics system is okay, but it's not a lot. Little bits and bobs here of stuff coming in. Um, I'm planning our Christmas party. Uh, I'm planning all these projects, and I'm trying to get ahead on some of them. Uh, but this this rain gutter system seemed to be like something I really should do right away, and I had the time to work on it this weekend, so I did, because it takes this little narrow spot in the front of my greenhouse that heretofore has grown nothing for me, and it makes it productive. And I have some interesting observations on this. If you've never seen the rain gutter grow system, it's something you might want to look at. The guy that made it really well known is a guy named Larry Hall on YouTube, and there's there's like a whole community built around this now, and tons of improvements have been made to it. Again, like I said, it's pretty old technology as far as the interwebs go. It's probably five or six years ago this thing came out. I've talked about it a few times. I finally got around to building one. And what struck me is, so one of the things I plan to do today when I get back from buying my new piece from Lowe's, I'm going to go since I'm done here, I think, and get it, is I'm going to dig up some of the pepper plants that I have growing in the aviary that are kind of at the end of their, their run, prune them and put maybe one or two plants into two of these nine buckets. And if you have that even in a greenhouse, you can get enough cold enough temperatures to kill a pepper plant. But it's a bucket, so you can just pick it up and bring it in the house. So one of the things I've a really quick snap to with this rain gutter grow bucket system is you drill a three, actually a two and seven and eighths inch hole in the bottom of the bucket and you put a three-inch net cup through it, and you fill that with dirt, and then it becomes a wicking bed, basically. Well, once that's in there, if you take it out, so then it sits between these two two-by-fours two, two that hold the, the rain gutter in place, and then it sits down in the water. You get how that works, even if you've never seen it. But when you take that bucket off of there, guess what? There really ain't no good place to set it down, is there? Because if you do, you're going to push that net cup in there and screw everything up. But what works perfect is a, is a center block. Because you got the hole in a center block, you set the bucket on the center block and the, and the net pot in the hole. So just having a couple center blocks with a tarp in the house somewhere or your garage if it's warm enough, it's a great way that you can go ahead and just bring those things in the house on the nights it's going to freeze. Now, places where it freezes for a long time all the time, not going to work. But us Southerners, man, takes those peppers and makes them into perennials. So that's kind of what I'm 
been doing right now. Anyways, we've wrapped up another show. Let me remind you, one of the ways you can support our show is by supporting us through tspaz.com. Just go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online, and any online shopping you do from tspaz helps support us and the work that we do. Today I have a, uh, a really great product for you guys. It's one I've brought around a couple times before, but I think it really makes a ton of sense right now. Um, it is made by one of my favorite companies, which is eTech City. And eTech City has all kinds of electronics and, and stuff, all really well priced. And what I love about eTech City is that they absolutely stand behind what they do. I'm not going to say that they don't like you know it's Chinese manufactured electronics, so occasionally something doesn't work, but they always fix it. They always make it right. This is a wireless remote control electrical outlet set, and what this is is five little devices you can plug in up to five outlets, and you just it's got a little box and you plug it into an electrical outlet, then you plug whatever you want to run into that, and it just sits there, and then there's a remote control and it says one two three four five on it. And it says on and off for each number. So if you want number one to come on, you just press on. Now here's the cool thing. If you get two sets of these, they're all the same. So you could have two marked number one in two different spots of the house, on and off, and they'll come on and off in unison if you had more of a zone effect you wanted to do. But five is pretty flexible. Like when we first got them, we put four in right away, and I had a fifth one I really didn't have a need for. Um, but I use them for my, my lights on my fish tanks. So when I come to my office in the morning, I pick my little remote control up, and I hit number three on, and my fish lights come on. Uh, when I'm running plant lights, I run, I run those on there. Now I've moved them to a timer, but for a while I had them on that. Right now I have, I have Dorothy's Christmas Village running on these things. I have two zones. I think it's one and five. And it, it, you know, when it's time to go to bed at night, I just turn them off, and in the evening we turn them on. And my wife's crazy. My wife's like a Christmas tree Nazi. I'm not allowed to touch the lights on any tree. They have to be perfect. And she's she she admits she has a problem. Like she's like that light's not right. I want to punch a hole in the wall. Like really, like the only thing in the world she's like that about. I'm glad it's once a year. Uh, but you know she got all her trees set up and she got little trees and big trees. It's like a damn Christmas forest in there. But two buttons, the lights are on. Two buttons, the lights are off. Uh, they're great. If you had lights outside, you do the same thing. Then got to go to the house. And they, they have a pretty good range. Um, I could pick the remote up on my desk right now, even you know around the corner and back in my office. I could turn the trees on or off right now. Uh, I know it works like that because every once in a while I'll be sitting in here doing the show and I'll see my fish tank lights go off and on and off and on. It's my granddaughter, Tegan. Any remote she finds, she starts pushing buttons. And uh, she'll be turning my fish on and off on me or my plant lights on and off on me. But they're kind of cool. They're only like 27 bucks, and uh, you get five of them. Here's the hack. They're not labeled. It doesn't say one, two, three, four, five on them. You don't really know, like when you take them out of the box, like which, like here's the remote, which one is this? So when you take them out of the box the first time, just plug them into something, stick something to them like a light or something, and go on and off. Just start turning on until it comes on. And then take a Sharpie marker and write right on the plastic on it, one, two, three, four, five, and then you'll know. Oh, by the way, comes with two remotes. Five switches, two remotes. So we have five of them, and we have a remote I keep in my office and a remote we keep out in the living room. And sometimes if I'm going to go to bed at night and I'm not sure if I turn the fish off, I just push off anyway. And I know if I didn't turn them off, they're off now. Pretty cool. You can find them at tspaz.com. And remember, you shop at tspaz.com. You support the Survival Podcast. 
even if what you buy, you were going to buy anyway. So always go there first before your online shopping experience. That brings us to our song of the day. Last week, we did a tribute to Ozzy Osbourne, and I had said uh, that I was kind of calling an audible, and I guess I still did because uh, John Adam uh, basically made me my new list of songs because we were out and included the one I was going to call an audible for, also from Ozzy Osbourne today. So it'll be the last we hear from Ozzy uh, for quite a while, I imagine. But this song has a meaning that Ozzy meant for it, but was immediately adopted by soldiers to mean something totally different. It's called Mama, I'm Coming Home. And this is from uh, 1991. Ozzy had gotten clean and sober again, uh, which he's done again a few more times since then. But he was really at a point where he's probably going to kill himself. And Sharon, his wife, brought him around. And this song was for her and about her. And he credits her for, for, for saving his life. He really does. And says, basically, I'd be dead if it weren't for her. And so this song is all about how much he loves her and how he's coming back to her. So that's what that song is about. I was in the Army in 1991 stationed in Panama. And I'll tell you what, if you're a well-known artist and you want guaranteed that you're going to get some traction with a song, make a song about going home. And, and it will get adopted by soldiers who are overseas. Uh, I think that, that one of the other big songs from this time frame was from the 80s. It was by Motley Crue. It's called Home Sweet Home was another one. And I know there's lots of lots of stuff uh, that today, you know, Soldiers has taken on uh, about coming home. Chris Daughtry had a song called Home in like 06, 07. I know that got to be real big with, with deployed troops. And it's just because troops want to be home. I mean, it's very hard to understand if you've never been in that situation. But even if you like what you're doing... Even if you're not in a combat zone or something like that, and overall it's a pretty good duty compared to other places, there's just something about not being home. So when this song came out, it became a song that got an awful lot of play at the NCO club on Fort Clayton. And uh, that club was divided into three floors. The bottom floor was like a salsa dance club, and then the second floor uh, was like a uh, your typical like uh, disco dance that kind of music. And the third floor was the country western floor. And it was probably the most popular of the three. Uh, it definitely was the most popular with me. But like all country bars, uh, a couple times a night, they would play, you know, not country music. And usually the same kind of crap that they'd play down on that second floor for the girls that wanted to dance with each other and stuff like that. Um, but they were getting some other songs that were pretty good mixed in with it. Some some classic rock that was you know in the country vein or some good rock music just to mix things up a little bit. Well, when this song came out and it got played the first time up there, you could see every single person's head turn. And it's not like one of these thrashing songs where you're not quite sure of the words. You can listen to the words and go, I get what this song's about. But I think for every soldier that was out there, it became about going home. Because I'll tell you something about being stationed overseas. You can ask most guys, if it's a regular deployment where they have orders in and they know when they're leaving, how many days they have left, and they can usually tell you. Because there's just something about being home. And for all the mistakes that this country makes and this government of this country makes, this country is my home. And even when I'm on vacation to other parts of the world, it just isn't the same. And that's why this song was so big with troops. I'm happy to share it with you today. And tomorrow we'll go to something new. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 
Face a thousand times. 